went bowling the other night with my small group. Our life groups have been rocking. You've been enjoying the, the life groups, our parenting life groups, our uh, different life groups we've been having have been just awesome. Uh, the big ideas one that Brendan mentioned, uh, bowling was a blast and a bunch of us empty nesters out there bowling, having a good time, trying not to pull a muscle or anything like that. I was amazed at the strength of some of these women when it came to bowling, man. Like, I mean, I'm not a sexist. Maybe I am. I don't know. I'm just, but I'm just saying like, wow, I would, the, the miles per hours tracked over at Don Carter's, it was just I, I was amazed, and there was some fantastic bowling that took place, and we had a great time, and uh, those those life groups. If you're not in a life group, next semester, you need to sign up and get involved in one. We're going to look at Matthew 14, starting with verse 22, and read this awesome story. Matthew 14, 22, it says this, immediately, it's great to have my mother-in-law in the house, too. Brenda Gale, yes, who was an amazing bowler, one of the most surprising ever, just like powerhouse, right, league bowler, amazed, awesome job. Immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, and he sent the multitudes away, and when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. Now when evening was come, he was alone there, but the boat was now in the middle of the sea, tossed by the waves. For the wind was contrary. Now in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went to them walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It is a ghost. And they cried out for fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Be of good cheer. It is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it is you, notice this, if it is you, Command me to come to you on the water. And he said, come. He said, come. But when he, uh, uh, and when Peter had come down out of the boat, now they're in the middle of the water. Peter comes down out of the boat, doesn't swim, but walked on the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw that the wind was boisterous, He was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him and said to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. Then those who were in the boat came and worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. I'd like to preach a message entitled, A storm named opportunity. A storm named opportunity. Let's pray right now. Father, thank you so much for this reading. I pray, God, that you would help me to speak what needs to be spoken today, to say what you want said, and I give you praise for that. I pray that you would give us ears to hear what is needing to be said, God, and I give you praise for that, and I thank you, Lord, for all of this. In Jesus' name, everyone say amen. God bless you. You may be seated. A storm named opportunity. If a tropical disturbance organizes, it becomes a tropical depression. Organization always depresses me too, right? Wouldn't you be depressed? If it achieves sustained winds of 39 miles per hour, it becomes a tropical 
storm and gets a name. If it continues to grow in strength, it becomes a hurricane, and that name sticks with it. Hurricane Katrina started out as a tropical storm, as a tropical depression. And in the deep-fried, dirty south, here on the Gulf, named storms make a difference. In your insurance coverage, if it's a named storm, it's somewhat different than if it's not a named storm. Well, today I'd like to tell you about a storm with a name. I gave this storm this particular name. It's like Brother McFarland said, where the Bible speaks, I speak, and where the Bible's silent, you're really blessed to have me because I speak also, right? That's a joke. That's a joke. But I gave this storm a name because the name fits. This is a sermon about a storm named Opportunity. It blew up one evening on the Sea of Galilee, and I want to give you some of what built up to this storm on that fateful night. Jesus had a very busy day on this particular 24-hour period when the storm came into play. He had a day filled with tragedy and triumph. To help us grasp the brutality of these 24 hours, I built a little timeline. The times I'm going to give you are estimates, but they are based and they are very close to what the text gives us. So we'll start with sunrise, maybe about 6 a.m. Jesus is approached by men. Now, this is before the storm, 6 a.m. that morning. Jesus is approached by men who have been up all night. They are tired. They are haggard. They have bloodshot eyes. They have tear-stained faces, and they bring Jesus devastating news, the kind of news that makes your blood turn to ice. His favorite cousin, his ministry partner, John the Baptist, the only guy who really got him, Jesus that is. John the Baptist had been beheaded overnight. It was a sick and sordid tale, a drunk king, a jealous wife, a lewd daughter, incestuous lust, pride, revenge, power, greed, a total miscarriage of justice, a total disregard for human life. And the scripture sums up this nightmare succinctly in Matthew 14, 10 and 11. It says, so he sent and had John beheaded in prison and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl and she brought it to her mother. Just brutal to the point, horrifying. It was such a senseless death, a murder that was really not about John, and it was really all about the dysfunction of this royal family. Herodias, Herod Antipas, the girl, they were selfish, heartless animals, monsters. John spoke the truth but he paid with his life. Eventually, Herod Antipas would play a role in the execution of someone else who told the truth. Well, he actually was the truth, and that would be Jesus Christ himself. John's disciples immediately buried him, and they sent word. They sent word to Jesus. Jesus, no doubt, 
in his flesh, in his humanity, was heartbroken upon hearing this tragic, horrifying news, this grisly story. Jesus gets into a boat and attempts to get away. Now, all you men understand, when the times get tough, get in your boat and get away. That's why we need a boat, baby. Just get in your boat and get away. He gets in his boat and he's trying to get away, to be alone, to process the grief. But the crowds discover his whereabouts and they follow. So we started out at 6 a.m. Now we're mid-morning, no later than 11 a.m., maybe earlier. Jesus, who just wanted to be alone and process the pain, finds himself surrounded by people, a crowd. Soon there's thousands of them. There's 5,000 men. There's thousands and thousands of women and children. Soon the crowd has surged to over 20,000 people, some estimates as high as 25,000. And when Jesus sees the people and he sees their needs and he sees their desperation and he sees their lostness and their need for direction and guidance and healing and encouragement, he's moved with compassion and he sets his own grief on the shelf and he rolls up his sleeves and he spends the rest of the day healing them all. This was a full six or eight hours of intense, powerful ministry to thousands and thousands and thousands of people. Now, evening rolls around. It's 5 or 6 p.m., something like that. Jesus' disciples try to get him to send the people away so they can go get food. Most of them have not eaten all day. Jesus refuses. He commands his disciples. He says, you give them something to eat. But they only have five loaves and two fish. You've heard that story. So Jesus organizes this enormous crowd. He blesses the meal and he serves. He begins to break it, divide it. And in this legendary feat, he feeds over 20,000 people and has a bunch left over, right? So this is an enormous miracle. This is really the zenith of his ministry. This is the only miracle of Jesus recorded in all four Gospels. It's the scope. It's the grandness of the scale. By this point in Jesus' ministry, thousands and hundreds of thousands of people have seen his miraculous power. They've seen him do things to other people. They've seen the miracles. They've heard the results. They've watched it. But this is the only time that he ministers to this many people and they each receive their own personal miracle. This was a massive moment in his ministry. It staggers the imagination what he did here in this story. John records that because of this miracle, the crowd wanted to rise up and make Jesus king. They wanted him to revolt and lead a rebellion. I mean, he can heal us. He can feed us. John MacArthur points out this was the idea of the welfare state, right? We don't ever have to work a day in our lives again because Jesus can heal us all and feed us all. I mean, there's the New Deal. There's Medicare. There's Medicaid. There's Social Security. There's Obamacare. There's whatever Trump's trying to do. Can you imagine 
Jesus care, right? Woo! Jesus care. They wanted to make Jesus king. Now, think of the temptation this had to be for Jesus. The people are asking him, will you overthrow Herod Antipas, who just murdered your cousin, John? Will you take over the whole Roman Empire? We will help you. Jesus told them in John 6, when they asked him about this, he said, I didn't come to lead a revolution. I came to lay my life down. I came to die. And except you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part in me. Now, feeding this many people, even though it was miraculous, it had to take hours. And remember, all he wanted to do from 6 o'clock that morning was get away and be alone and process the loss of John. So it's late evening now. It's probably close to 10 or 11 o'clock. Jesus shoes his disciples into a boat, makes them sail out into the dark sea of Galilee. But they're experienced sailors. They can handle it. Then he disperses the crowds and he sends them home. Guys, you got to go home. So somewhere around midnight, 18 hours after he tried to get away, he finally does. Verse 23 says, and he went up on the mountain by himself to pray, and he was alone there. And while Jesus prays, his followers are attempting to sail across the Sea of Galilee. Normally, because of the susceptibility of the Sea of Galilee to sudden storms, because of its location, geography, sailors would hug the coast to get to the other side so they wouldn't get caught in the middle of this potentially hazardous sea. But probably because they're already tired, they've been up for a long time too, and they're trying to shave some time off the journey, they take the shortest path. They decide to go all the way across it, right in the middle which is about six or eight miles. And they don't have an Evinrude, and they don't have a Johnson. They are out there paddling, right, trying to catch a sail, a little wind. They're trying to get across the Sea of Galilee. But as they got right out into the middle, they started facing increasingly strong headwinds. And after about four or five hours of hard sailing, they're still not across They're still stuck in the middle, and they are absolutely exhausted at the end of their rope, getting nowhere. So now it's late night. It's 3 or 4 a.m. I know that's early morning, but it's middle of the night. Jesus takes a stroll. Now remember, he's been up now for 22 or 23 hours straight, and he walks down the mountain to the seashore, And he doesn't stop walking when he gets to the sea. And he doesn't wade into the sea. He walks off the mountain on the seashore. Valerie and I love to go to the beach. I would love to be able to do this. I've tried to do this. I've tried with the help of boogie boards and even surfboards. But I even with those apparatus have a hard time doing this. Jesus walked to the seashore got to the water, and it was like his feet never left the land. He walked on the water. He starts walking on the sea 
of Galilee. That is pretty astounding. Can you imagine those first steps, right? Wouldn't you have loved to have been, you know, able to see that and, and to see him just make those first steps? I mean, if we could see that, wouldn't we'd pull out our cell phone, we'd be videoing it, it'd be on YouTube just like that, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. We'd be having live feed, you know, like here goes Jesus. He's walking on the water, and it's not on stones that are hidden just below the surface. He is, it's not on ice, it's not frozen. He's walking on the water. And Jesus, listen, he was sad at the death of John. The devil took his cousin out. But I got to tell you, I think Jesus is also a little mad because the devil wants to get his, he wants to get his disciples now. He, he, he got, he's, he's distracted Jesus enough. He wanted to get Jesus off mission. Now he's after Jesus' disciples. Wants to get them distracted and discouraged. The devil's after Jesus' followers. These are the ones who are going to turn the world upside down. He wants to get them off mission. So Jesus goes to where they are. Now, according to my research, a leisurely walk takes about 115 to 120 steps per minute. You cover a mile in about 17 or 18 minutes. A brisk pace demands 135 steps per minute for a 15-minute mile. I would say Jesus was at a brisk pace, so it's going to take him about 45 minutes to an hour to get where the disciples are if he walks the whole way. He gets down the mountain. He's going to get out there where they're flailing around. Once he's on the sea, he's hoofing it, uh, although he's hoofing it, you know, on, on the water. And he gets close to them. As he gets close to them, they get a glimpse of him, and they think he's a ghost. Are you with me? Are you with me in this story? They get a glimpse of him, and they think he's a ghost. They're, they're exhausted. They're, you know, they, they, they're so tired. They look at this Jesus walking towards them. It's still nighttime, 4 or 5 o'clock in the morning, according to the Scripture. And they are delirious, and they think that, that he's a ghost. He's an apparition. And, and he looks at them. He knows what they think, and he says, Do not fear. It's me. Don't fear. It's me. And here's where we're going. Here's where we're going with this. Some of you, you are out doing what the Lord has asked you to do. He shooed you out on a mission. Go on, get it done. And you're just doing your best to obey what he's asked of you. And a storm has blown up in your face. He told you to go here. He told you to do this. He told you to head this direction. And all of a sudden, you're facing opposition more than you could ever have realized. These cats in our story... They're experienced sailors. They know their way around a boat. They know their way around the sea. And maybe God has asked you to do something that you're familiar with. Maybe you're even gifted at. Maybe it's something you're good at doing. And, and so you, you've stepped out there and a storm has made what is usually no problem at all into being very difficult for you to complete. I want to tell you the name of the storm that's blown into your life. The name of the storm is opportunity. Everybody say opportunity. The storm you're facing is an opportunity for you to grow and mature and learn and lean and see Jesus in ways you never saw him before. I want to give you four points from this. Are you with me? 
This is a four-point sermon. My kids used to always tell me, you need to preach a one-point sermon, Dad. And I've tried. I really have tried. But I got four points for you, all right? I'm going to give you four points today. First of all, I love the fact that these disciples were faithful. They didn't stop. They didn't turn around at the storm. They didn't say, there's no use in trying. They just kept working to get through the storm because Jesus told them to. They had a sense of purpose, a work ethic, a loyalty to the master's word. Shoulder to the wheel, nose to the grind. He gave them the word and they're determined to see it through. If God has given you some direction and given you a word and you're facing a storm, powerful headwinds, opposition, my admonishment to you today is don't quit for crying out loud. Don't turn around and don't stop. Press on. Press on. The church has too many quitters. There's too many believers that bail when the going gets tough. Don't stop doing what God's told you to do. Don't leave where God's told you to go. Faithfully, fervently, fiercely fulfill all that he's called you to do. I mean, at least try, right? Give it your best shot and see what's happened. See what happens. Even when you're tired and you're exhausted and you're weary, Psalm 30 and 5 says, Weeping may endure for the night, but joy comes when? In the morning. Galatians 6, 9 says, And let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. My beloved, let me tell you something. Don't drop your standards when everybody else does. Don't lose your doctrine when everybody else does. When, when winds of doctrine come blowing in that are contrary to the word that got you this far, don't give in. Push back. Push back against it. Push back against it. I've spent some time out on the water myself, and I, I, I'll never forget, me, me and Mr. Melvin went fishing. We went on the men's fishing trip. We got to go on another one quick. But we went on a men's fishing trip five, six years ago, and, and, and a tropical storm blew in to Grand Isle. And all those men were chicken. They all stayed up in the cabin. Ooh, it's a tropical storm. Ooh. But me and Mr. Melvin... I'm telling you what, you know what I'm talking about, Adam. We waited out there. Oh, whatever. I said, come on, Mr. Melvin. And I'm telling you, we got our fishing poles, and we waded out into the, to the Gulf of Mexico, getting sandblasted. I got pictures. I should have I dug them up. And we're wading out there, man, like it's just crazy. And you throw your, 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 your bait, you know, and it's like, whoop, you know, immediately. And we were trying, you know, we were trying. To, we wanted, you talking about some people determined to fish. Me and Mr. Melvin were determined to fish. Mr. Melvin's Jane's husband. We lost him a few years ago. But we were trying our best to fish. I mean, we were giving it our best shot. Winds, man, right up in our face. I remember spending time on Lake Bistino when I was a little kid, and there was a storm that blew up. We were way out, and, and guess what happened? Our motor got messed up and wouldn't start, which is like a regular occurrence for my father, okay? And so we're out there, and we're trying to get that bad boy going. We can't get it going. And so, so we're, we get paddles. Do you know what a paddle? You know, northerners call them oars. 
Southerners call them paddles. And man, like we're paddling, you know. Like it's not like Piro, you know, noodle paddle type thing. This is this is like like whoa, like Hawaii five oh. You know what I'm talking about? I mean, paddling with all of our strength and might, trying to get out of that lake because a storm had blown up. I remember being on Lake Ontario, Brendan, Mark. I remember being on Lake Ontario, and and and, and uh, the wind took us way out in our kayak, and getting. This kind of rowboat paddle thing in our cat. It's just like, holy cow, you know. It's like, and by the time we got to the shore, whew, wow, Valerie was exhausted from all that paddling. Because <laughs> she had taken me out, you know. And I was sitting back, you know. She was like, oh, no, I got it, I got it. <laughs> no, that's not true. But, but these disciples, man, when they found opposition, They were paddling, and they were getting after it, man. They were fighting to do what God told them to do. I want to tell you something. If you're facing a a storm today, that storm is called opportunity. You can get something out of it. I just want to encourage you. Don't quit. Get your paddle out, man. Put your back into it. Don't stop, and don't turn around, but put everything you've got into it and watch what God does. You have to make a stand. Now, let me ask you, where, pray tell, did those disciples get this idea of not stopping when you were in the middle of a storm? It had only been 20 hours earlier when those men said, John is dead. And in spite of the storm and his cousin's murder, He steps up to the plate and he says, I see a crowd. It's got needs. I will not be turned aside. And he starts paddling through that storm. I'll deal with John later. But right now, I'm going to do the greatest miracle in my entire ministry. And you will all write about it. I love that. These disciples would certainly prove themselves faithful in the earliest days of the church walking through storms in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the earth, continuing to work even when they lost their beloved brothers in this great endeavor. So the first point is, they didn't stop. They were faithful. Second point, they trusted him. They trusted him. In a storm... I'm going to be straight up with you. It can be hard to see Jesus. But I want to promise you this. He knows exactly where you are. He knows right where you are. You might not know where he is, but he knows where you are. We say things like this, I don't feel him. I feel like he's a million miles away from me. My prayers don't get any higher than the ceiling. They come out of my mouth and just drop to the ground. I want to remind you, he swore he'd never leave you or forsake you. He swore he's with you even to the end of the age. David said, I've been young and now I'm old and I've never seen the righteous forsaken nor a seed begging bread. I'm going to tell you, sometimes you don't feel him, but that's okay because he knows right where you are. The storm is an opportunity for you to let him know, even if I feel like you're not here, I'm not quitting. I'm not stopping ever. It's one thing to be faithful in the storm. It's one thing to trust in the storm. But I'm going to give you a couple other things here 
that are, are very powerful. The third point is this. Peter was adventurous. These next two things made Peter stand out from his peers. I mean, the rest of them were faithful. The rest of them trusted him. But Peter does something that's, that's different. He was adventurous. He does not say, if it's you, Lord, stop this storm. Instead, Peter says, if it's you, and you're doing something I've never known to be possible before, then I want to do it with you. I've never seen anybody walk on water. I've never even seen you walk on water, Jesus. And I've been following you for quite a while now. But you empowered me to cast out demons. You empowered me to lay my hands on the sick and they recover. You sent me out and I saw great and mighty things. And if you did that and you're walking on water, I want to walk with you on the water. There was a sense of adventure in Peter's life. Some of you, the storm you're in, it is called opportunity. And it is the storm that could very well define you because Peter became known as that disciple that walked with Jesus on the water. God could do something in you in this storm that would set you apart. Whatever happened to our sense of adventure, where did we get off and think that it's just going to be this boring, go to church Sunday in and Sunday out and just kind of live this boring Christian life? It's not supposed to be boring. It's an adventure. Peter asked a bold question. If you're walking on the water, Jesus, I want to walk on the water too. How arrogant, how proud, how boastful. No, no, adventurous. My Lord and my master, I want to walk in that level of the supernatural as well. I want to be where you are. Peter's question is, is called a protasis. If it's you, it's a conditional question. If could be rendered since. Since it's you. The request is bold. Because it's really like, I know it's you, and since it's you, bid me come. I think that makes more sense. I don't think it's if it's you, it's since it's you. Because he knew, I serve a master who encourages boldness, who encourages big prayers, who encourages audacious requests. Since it's you. Now, if it was somebody, if it was the high priest, it was some of these other people, they're like trying to put a, a container and a box around the power of God. But since it's you, Jesus, oh, bid me come on the water. And what does Jesus say? Come on, boy. Get out of here. I love it. It separated Peter from the rest of his peers. Hurricane opportunity blew up. On this little boat. And what's amazing about it to me is that Peter did something only Jesus had done and no one had ever done it before as far as we know. <laughs> what power, let me ask you, could be revealed through the opportunity that has blown up in your face? 
Where has our sense of adventure gone? Where we ask boldly and we seek boldly and we go boldly. This is an opportunity. This is the opportunity we've been craving. Instead of saying, God, make this go away. God, help me to walk in the middle of it upright with you and see the hand of God do something powerful. I mean, just this adventure, this boldness. I know you've got this, Lord, since it's you. The fourth thing about this story is, and this is the one, another one that relates to Peter. Peter, when Jesus said, come, Peter stepped out of the boat. That always blows my mind. He stepped out of the boat. He, in other words, he's in the boat. It's a struggle. But he separates himself from everybody else. He separates himself. He steps out of, think about it, it's water. He was raised on the water. Water, you sink in it. If Wallace was here today, he could give us the science of it all. He could give us the correct terminology of it all. Beware with Wallace. He's out of town today. When he comes back, I'm just telling you, beware. He's a scientist. He will correct you on science. Trust me. There's the water, you know, buoyancy and all this stuff. And so he he steps, and it's solid. I mean, this is unprecedented. I know the other 11 were looking at Peter like, holy cow. Wow. Woo. And Peter starts walking. Oh, do you know the empowerment? Like, oh, I'm walking on water, right? Like, I'm walking on the water just like Jesus. I'm walking on the water. I'm wa- we pray, God, I want to be like you. Jesus, I want to be like you. Oh, just to be, to be like Jesus. To be like Jesus. And we, we want to be like Jesus. So often that perception for us is I just want to be meek and, and lowly and I want to be humble and, and all that. Gee, Peter was like, I want to be like you. Oh, and I want to walk on water like you. I want the power of God to surge through my body. I want to do things that are not supposed to be done except God is with that person. I want to walk like you, Jesus. I want to talk like you. I want to be like you. Sometimes it is in the storm that you have the opportunity to be more like Jesus than ever before. It's in that storm that you have the opportunity to walk in power. This is going to somebody today. I'm telling you, somebody today, he walked Don't be afraid to do something that that everybody else is scared to do. Again, that sense of adventure. I'm telling you, if I'd have listened to my peers, I wouldn't have done half the stuff for God that we've been honored and privileged to do. And I don't say that in a bragging way, but there's so many naysayers. It can't be done. Who are you kidding? You can't start churches. You don't have what it takes. You don't all the naysayers in the world. But hey, take a look around you. I'm telling you, God can give you power in the middle of the storm. A sense of adventure. He stepped out. He was different than everybody else. I mean, he was walking on water with Jesus. That became the defining moment in his life. He became the spokesperson for the 12. From here on, Peter speaks for them. Well, you know, this is what we say. 
Stands up with the 11 on the day of Pentecost. This is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. He becomes a spokesperson. And you know why? Everybody's like, wow, I wish I'd have stepped in the boat. I wish I'd have walked on the water. He walked on the water. Can you imagine having coffee and whatnot? You're having coffee, you know. What about old Peter? Oh, yeah, he's a great guy. Oh, he's funny, man, you know. He gets on my nerves at times. You know his story, his backstory. No, no, what? In the storm? No, what, what? He walked on the Sea of Galilee with the master. What? Yeah, yeah, he. None, we were all afraid. We were terrified, you know. And he just is odd. He's like, since it's you, Lord, I, I know, you know, you like these kind of things. Uh, bid me come. And Jesus said, I see, and we think that too, like, we, Jesus is always in there. He speaks with a British accent, and he's real sissified looking. I know that's politically incorrect anymore. I don't know, but you know what I'm saying. Like all those, those 12th century paintings of Jesus, you know, his toes are always pointed down. He's like, you know, whatever. You know what I'm saying. <laughs> Looks like he blows on the cover of Vogue magazine or something. No. We see, and he speaks, you know, like, come, Peter, you know. That's not, that's not, I don't see that. I see Jesus like going, you serious? Come on, baby. Come on. The water's warm. Under your feet. It's under your feet, but it's warm. I'm telling you, come on. Come on. I mean, it's like this sense of excitement, like, yes, man, you know, I love this. I love this, like this, this, just this audacious, listen, it's audacious faith. But let's talk a little bit more about that, and I'm, I'm coming to a close right now. Interestingly enough, F.F. Bruce, F. F. Bruce points out, Peter walked on the water. He walked on the water, but he was afraid of the wind which is so human, powerful overcoming in one area, taking it back in another. Oh. Walking on water. You know, like he could only focus on one thing at a time. He couldn't multitask. His faith was kind of like on the water thing. The wind thing came up. Oh, he gets scared, right? Fear creeps in because of the wind. We all struggle in our faith. Even when Peter failed, though, and began to sink, Jesus was right there to save him. Pulled him out of his moment of crisis. Together, they walk on the water back to the boat. They get in the boat. And Jesus said what Peter did was something done on little Faith, little faith. Oh, you of little faith. <laughs> really, oh, you of little faith is one Greek word. He looks at him and he says, little faith. I think a land before time, little foot, you know. Jesus was always picking on Peter because later he's going to call him little rock. Little rock, little faith. It was little, he said, 
And I think this is a message to the rest in the boat as well. Oh, you of little faith. What did that mean about the guys in the boat, right? <laughs> Bunch of doubters, right? Here's what little faith can, can do. Little faith can obey the word. Little faith can ask great things. Little faith can do the impossible. Little faith calls on Jesus when it's in trouble. I'm going to tell you something. Some people in this room today, you've got a storm named opportunity. My encouragement is don't quit. Be faithful. Ask great things. Be different. You don't have to be like everybody who sits in the boat. You can be different. You can be faithful. You can trust. But then you can say, I want to experience you in a new realm. I want to to stretch my tiny faith to where it becomes little faith. Because one day I want to become a great faith man. A great faith woman. I want to do great things for you, Lord. That's what little faith. Stand with me right now. That's what little faith can do. I think it's fascinating that Peter initiated the move. Jesus didn't. Jesus just came walking to them. In the middle of all that, Peter initiated it. Hey, I want to do what you're doing. You think that would be okay? He says, come on, man. There's a funeral yesterday. Elton Bernard. Here he is. Great guy. Respected him immensely. An apostle to Korea. An apostle to Gonzalez. Spanish-speaking people. And he couldn't speak Spanish at all. Couldn't speak Korean when he went to Korea. Brings a bilingual, retired missionary to Korea, God does, to Gonzalez, restarts a church, plants a Hispanic church, does amazing things. And I want to tell you how Elton Bernard did it on little faith. Just one step at a time. He was going to Korea, and he was in a a tragic car accident, injured the entire family. And, uh, you know, the naysayers, God's trying to tell you something, Brother Bernard. You don't need to go to Korea. Had to wait a year to recover. He He was on his way and got in the car wreck. Everybody's recovering. The naysayers are like, You need to wait. I mean, God's trying to tell you something. You shouldn't go. Like, who do you think you are? But not Brother Bernard. He said, you know, if God spoke to me one time to go, that's all it takes. That's faithfulness right there. You know what I mean? That's perseverance, determination. Storm blew up. He saw it as opportunity. We're going to see what God does. And not only did he go, he went. He started tons of churches, thousands and thousands of believers all over the world from what they did in South Korea. And then he retires comes back here, and we got people, Penny, we got others in this church affected by this powerful man 
and his wife. What, what was that? It was just it was just a storm called opportunity, one after another, and God did incredible things. What are you facing today? The opposition. Don't let it back you into a corner. Don't let it push you away. This is your moment. This is what you've been waiting for. This opposition, this depression, this storm, this is an opportunity. You can see God provide in ways you couldn't have imagined before the storm. This is your moment. Shall we bow our heads? Father.